If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. Welcome back to the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. We're currently uh, beginning a series on the book of Revelation. And so we uh, wanted to share that podcast here with you. Uh, we will go through various sections and deal with some of the symbolism and apocalyptic language that appears in this great book. Uh, it has been presented to a class on Wednesday mornings at the Somerdale Church of Christ. And so uh, if you get this podcast and you listen to it, you live in the local area and you want to come be a part of the class, you're welcome to do that. Or you can email me if you've got some questions and I'll try to help you as best as I can. Now, I do not claim to be an expert on the book of Revelation, but I love studying and love presenting messages from God's Word. So I hope that this lesson will continue to encourage you and bless you as you serve God. Alrighty, so we are in Revelation chapter 3. Yay, we've made it to a new chapter. Um, <laughs> I know we're taking it a little slow, but I do feel like it's important for us to get some of the history of the churches um, before we really talk about what the letter says. And one reason I like to do that is because I, I, when I was growing up, uh, I didn't hear a lot of Bible history. And I think that is one of the reasons why some of our young people don't know that Bible history is history. Uh, all the things that have happened, I've always dreamed of having a timeline somewhere in a huge room where you show uh, different things that have happened in history and then along the timeline have a little longer line and show a biblical story and what time it did. Uh, I love to be able to study the Bible chronologically. It's difficult unless you buy a chronological Bible, but you can actually read it in the way it was written, not necessarily um, uh, each particular book because sometimes it's a chapter or two that needs to be somewhere else it, to read it in a chronological order. I just like to do that. And um, also, if you buy a chronological Bible, they will often put like the parables that are spoken in two or three or maybe even all four Gospels. They'll con make it concise into one. And so you can kind of see when Jesus said this and when Paul went there and all the history that's taken place around him. Uh, so today... What's that? You find it accurate. I do. The only thing that I would question about the chronological Bible, Ethelgard Smith did one, probably the best one, not just of any any religious group. I'm talking about even though he's Church of Christ, it's it's the best. Uh, the chronological Bible. It's called the chronological Bible. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was the story, and and it's good too, but it's narrative. 
So this is called The Chronological Bible. Uh, it's an NIV translation, but it's done by Effegard Smith. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the best. The only question I have is I have a hard time reading Job before Genesis. Um, and it does start with Genesis, but Job was probably the first book ever written. So uh, it could have been written before Moses, they believe. So obviously before the uh, Pentateuch. And so that's the reason why Job's used very early on in that book. Um, even though his character doesn't appear until the time of Abraham, probably. Uh, there's a lot of... I found it confusing. Yeah, it, it, if, you're, if you're reading it and trying to place it in different positions in Scripture, it can be complicated. Because even like the Chronicles... I, I, I believe the Chronicles are probably the most underutilized books in the whole Bible. What, what Ezra does is he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to write a book about all the history of the, the faith of Jews from Genesis 1 until the time of the kings. And he writes a concise history. He's got the genealogy. He's got everything. If, if I were given, I were told I could only take one book from the Old Testament, I would probably take First Chronicles. Or if I could take First and Second Chronicles, I would do that. Because it does give you a pretty good history. Um, but we don't study it because it's, it's a repeat. Why would I want to read some? I mean, I could read the book. Why would I read the summary of the book? But uh, Ezra is writing, a, he's chronicling, we believe he's the chronicler, uh, that uh, he's writing kind of this history of all of the faith. And I love it. I think First and Second Chronicles are great. But I also like Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, tonight uh, we'll be on chapter six and seven. We're going to do two chapters tonight. Uh, so today we're going to talk about uh, the church at Sardis, and this is one of those sad stories. This is one of those churches that just, unfortunately, they, uh, they really struggled. So if you're in Revelation chapter 3, let's uh, look at Sardis. So on the screen, I'm going to show you a couple pictures. I know some of you really love these. Um, so this is a picture of Sardis from an overview right now today. And here are some of the structures that we'll talk about here. Uh, there is a, a, at the Acropolis, you kind of see down here, the Acropolis, uh, forms this huge mountain up really, really high. And on the edge of the mountain, there's the theater and the stadium and a couple other public buildings. Uh, and then, it would be like we'd say the northern part. Uh, and then here are the Roman walls. Here's the Lydian walls around the city. Uh, here is uh, the gymnasium, and inside the gymnasium is where the synagogue is. I'll show you a picture of that. It's really cool. Uh, where, where the early church would have met and where the Jews would have met. Uh, this is on Mount Timolus, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, and a um, couple things we know about them. Uh, one is this part of the mountain is behind the city. And it stands up. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of the stadium where they're going to play the World Cup in 2026 or whenever. The World Cup's going to take place in Mexico. And they built this huge stadium. And one part of it is open like this. And you can see the mountain while they're playing soccer. They're looking at a mountain. It is awesome. That's the way this would have been. They had the stadium, the theater. Everything would have been near this giant mountain. Uh, on the northern, or at least on the higher part, 1,500 uh, feet above where the main city was. Uh, it's about 2.5 miles from Hermas, which would be the next major city, so it's really kind of laid out 
in the central plain, we would say the central plain of the Hermes Valley. Uh, here's the Temple of Artemis. So on the other side of the uh, Acropolis, they would have had temples to different gods. And obviously they had a temple here to the Caesar. That's why John's writing to them. Um, try, I don't want to try to bore you too much, but um, there are some books written about this region. Uh, if you're familiar with the Persians, uh, Skelis, that would have been written about 472 B.C. He wrote about this city. Uh, the, what we know is it was, it was, of course, conquered by Alexander the Great, which is just like just about any other city in this, this region. But it was known as the Lydian Kingdom until the 7th century B.C. And that's the reason I, I mentioned the Lydian Wall. And what the Romans did is they came in and they built around it. And it does intersect at one point. Maybe you'll see here. It actually intersects at one point, and the uh, Roman wall goes over the Lydian wall, where the Lydian wall had laid. And so it's basically a double-walled city, so it's very strong. And then the Romans actually took it out around the uh, synagogue complex and where some of the other uh, religious groups would have met. And that's really, really good. They also, of course, were conquered by the Persians. Uh, in the Persians area, uh, Sardis was conquered by um, Cyrus the Great. And so uh, it came under Persian control, and that's one of the reasons why we see some of it, uh, at least some of this region used in some of the history and Old Testament texts. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of things went on in this particular region in Asia Minor. Uh, the Lydian kingdom, before it fell, uh, actually had artisans. They had architecture. They had uh, manufacturing plants, we would say. Large-scale places where they could produce dye. Uh, they had delicate wools. They had, um, they had uh, what else did they do here? Carpets. They were a lot like uh, five tire we mentioned last time. They, they loved to get the dyes and the wools and make colors, and so they would sell and trade stuff. They also found a lot of gold uh, in this area, and especially along the mountain, and so they protected that mountain. They walled it uh, on this side so they could be safe, but... Uh, they also had a, a, what we would call a metropolitan library. I'm going to show you some of these pictures here as we go through. Uh, but Sardis is kind of outside the loop of the Roman. I mean, the Romans, the Romans obviously had a place here, but it's kind of on the far reaches of the Roman Empire. So they were kind of ignored when it came to financial things. They had to do it on their own. Here is the, the city uh, edge, which would have been right up to Mount Tibolus, right here. And that's T-M-O-L-U-S, by the way. That's why it's hard to pronounce. <laughs> and uh, so you can see these roads. These would have been the roads that John or others who had preached here in this region or visited would have walked on. Uh, and to give you kind of an idea of the Lydian kingdom that I mentioned a moment ago, it would have included a few of the cities that he's writing to, including Ephesus and Smyrna. But you see how far inland it is? There's no uh, seaport here. So any trade that is done is not going to be uh, fish. Okay, they're going to be trading things that they can get off their land and off their mountain. Um, but it did go into Medea and Cilicia. Um, and then, look at that. This is what the uh, synagogue uh, and the, the places of worship, this is in that little region there. And uh, we believe this is what the, this is this area, if it's the synagogue, it's also where the early church met which is what we believe. We believe this is where the church met. So you can see that of all the cities that the church met in, they probably here have one of the nicest facilities to meet in. 
and uh, they have tried to keep it safe. Um, look at the walls. Look at the look at the design that they put into building these structures. Now I understand that there's grass on it and dirt on it, but look at how they use these stones. They were very creative. These, this is a DIY in progress. You know, um, the the people contributed to the work, and they wanted to make it very nice. So again, uh, when you look at what the synagogue does and then what the church does, it's a it's just a part of the culture. They took very good consideration of their uh, architecture. Uh, here's some of the columns. Look at this, uh, the design. I don't know if you can see it very well. The granite, you know, it's like, uh, how do you, how did they do that? You know, how did they perfectly cylindrically make these posts, these to make archways over the city, over the uh, walkways? I mean, it's just man. And there's the the mountain in the background. Uh, you can see a cemetery over here too, an old cemetery. Uh, and then again, this is on the outer scope. So you can see the roads that they would have walked through. Each of these buildings would have been places where there would have been manufacturing or trade or marketing. Uh, and so you can see some of the pillars. They've kept these. A few have fallen, obviously. Some of them have fallen and they pushed them back up into place. But, uh, but they're, they've done a pretty good job, unlike in Sardis, where they, they kind of only left a small part uh, available. They've left this reach. Of course, again, it's far from far inland from some of the other places. And so when you think about when the church worshipped in this place, and when the synagogue met here in this, this little area, they would have had a view of this mountain. And I, I know if you've ever been to, say, Branson, Missouri, there is a uh, chapel that meets on the top of, and I'm trying to remember the name of the little city there. It's like Ridgedale or Bluedale or something, anyway. There's a little place, and it's on the top of this mountain where uh, you've got College of the Ozarks, you've got all these places that, uh, you know, have built these, you know, there's, a, there's a hospital out there and so forth, but um, when you go to the top of the rock, they have a chapel, and it overlooks the lake, and it overlooks the mountains, and it's beautiful. Uh, it's much like the one in Carolina that you, maybe you've seen pictures of it where they have services out there, and it's just all this beautiful scenery and it kind of this, the stairs go down like this off the, the bluff and you can see all this around. So imagine being able to see that when you worshiped every Sunday. That'd be pretty cool. Um, again, here's some of the buildings. You see the steps. Um, a lot of work. A lot of work. And this is the outside of that facility. Again, still in fairly good condition. And it looks modern, doesn't it? It looks modern. Um, this is one of the reasons why a lot of churches use pillars is because we get that from the Romans. Uh, and if you walk into our assembly uh, or into our auditorium from the outside, you'd think it's very uh, Greco-Roman in style. And that's what a lot of churches like, is they have the columns. And we've been doing that for a long time. What's so amazing is that if there's anything still standing after that length yeah. of time. 2,000 years. And you know how many earthquakes happen in this region? I mean, they're there all the time. Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake. Ephesus was destroyed by an earthquake. And they have their, they have their uh, you know, their, their sphere. Um, there's also, uh, I mentioned on the side of the mountain, they had gold, but they had a lot of gold dust. And so they called them uh, golden sands. And they would use them. Like, if you come into my office, Misty bought me the other day. Uh, I have a lot of visitors in my office, and I always talk about how people come see me and everything like that. And she's like, well, I'm going to get you this. And it's one of those things where you can flip it over, and at times, <laughs> so like I can say, okay, well, we've been talking for 15 minutes, you know, or whatever. And so um, 
I told her I was going to leave it at home, you know, so I could, when people call, I just flip it over, give a, give a telemarketer or something minutes or whatever. But um, I've always wanted a little hourglass. I just think they're cool. And so, um, but they use golden sands, and that was one of these things in antiquity they would have kept and traded. So it's not just gold itself, it would have been the sand that they, they also sold, which is cool, because all the gold dust coming out. So it's a very wealthy city. Um, they became the capital of the East when Constantinople uh, was the capital. And they, they actually built Roman roads, Roman-style roads. And since it's so far from Rome, they had to spend a lot of their own money doing it. Uh, this would have been an entryway into one of these buildings. So you can see that they would have had a garden and a pool. And again, stood. It's been standing for 2,000 years. Super cool. Uh, I've never been here. I always wanted to. There's another view from where the synagogue would have been and where the church would have met. Uh, this is what impresses me, these archways. I mean, they just, it's really, I don't know, I geek out with that stuff. Um, and this is, again, where all the city, all the churches where I show you this. Well, it's on there each week. We don't to go through it, but kind of show you how they would have gone uh, in almost in a circle, these churches. And these were, these were the strongest churches, really. Um, so let's look at what Jesus says. It says, And the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father uh, and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, uh, in the mountains, they would have, I mentioned this a moment ago, but they would have uh, raised, sold, and harvested sheep, which produces wool, which is white. And so, most of the people in the church, their profession would have been, it's kind of like if you live in Fort Payne, Alabama. I, we, we were, I preached at the Collinsville Church. I had, we had two or three members in our congregation that owned sock factories. We were a 30-member church. <laughs> if, you, if you live in Fort Payne, at one point, somebody in your family probably worked in a sock factory. Uh, it's the sock capital of the world. This is a place where wool was, was taken, and some of it was dyed, but it was where you got the whitest, purest garments. And so that's the reason why Jesus says, you're going to have a garment. I'm going to make one for you. And uh, so again, this sort of given a little trigger to the, the readers that Jesus is relating himself to something that they sold, something that they were familiar with. Like when Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, who's he talking to? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. What's their profession? They're fishermen. So Jesus is using an illustration of something that some of the people sold or uh, may have owned places where they manufactured this wool. And he says, hey, I'm going to give you a garment that is pure white. And there's nothing more frustrating to a person who's running a garment factory, if you will, or a manufacturing company, and they have all this white and something spills on it or something happens and the machine breaks. Just a little bit of grease can ruin their life. 
So he says, I'm going to give you a spotless. And there are some of you walking around that already have your garment spotless. Did you hear and see that? He says, I, I don't see you perfect in your ways, but there are a handful of people here that are good. And that's important as you move forward um, as a church is to say, you know, Jesus is saying there are some good people here that you need to work with, that you need to follow their example, that there's always some kind of a remnant. There's usually someone or, or something good that you can hold to. And so Jesus is saying, uh, there, there are some here, there are a few names that have not defiled their garments. Uh, but he says they need to repent. And he really jumps in pretty harsh on them and says, you know, hey, I know what you're doing. And you all think you're a growing, striving, thriving church. And I'm telling you, y'all are dead. Uh, there's not a lot of good stuff happening here that I can tell you good. Usually his, his message has a commendation to start. You know, well, I hear that you do this and I hear that you do that. But it almost jumps off the bat. And it's going to get worse when we get to uh, the last congregation in Laodicea. It's kind of the worst of these. Um, but Sardis certainly had a reputation for being uh, wealthy. And they were independently wealthy. It's like the difference between old money and new money. Sardis was new money. <laughs> they had to work for it. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I probably, I would say the Romans didn't have a lot to do with them. They had been a little stuck up. They had their own things. and uh, They didn't want to trade with um, certain people. They were very selective. And that would have become a, a, an issue in their day. But, uh, but Jesus says we're going to look at the good stuff and we're going to look at the bad stuff. He also says, uh, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Uh, so if you walk with the Lord to be, to be taken, to be, uh, and he says, I may come as a thief. I may come quickly and do this. But he says, I'm going to take those who have been righteous, that have been good, and I'm going to reward them. So there's that great contrast between good and evil. I'm currently working on a, I think I finished it last night, technically, at about 11 o'clock. But I'm working on a uh, little blog about heaven and hell. And uh, it kind of disturbed me. I was reading on Pew Research, a uh, research study that was done in 20, 2021, about how many people believe in heaven and hell. And every generation, it gets less and less that believes in hell. Less and less. Only about 60% of people today believe in hell. And that includes Christians. Uh, one of the reasons why is there's a, um, and we may be getting off track here, but there is a group of people, and even within our fellowship, in fact, uh, I would say Mr. Fudge probably made it, uh, brought it to the forefront of most religious groups. And that is that he believed that hell was just an immediate second death. That there was no eternal fire, that there was no um, uh, irrevocable, no second chances. It was just a, he says, it's not a, a weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says that was Hades. So at the final judgment, it's just second death, separation from God. And there are some people that believe that. So I've been, been studying and reading uh, different people's opinions uh, on that. I know what I believe. But there are a lot of people, especially in this generation, that do not believe in hell. Well, when you don't believe in hell, there are no consequences for bad things. And so it, it almost is like saying, if there is a God, he's not going to punish everybody. And we, they believe in heaven if they don't believe in hell? That's a good question. I don't know. Does I, it come down to that they think God is love and, and he yeah. would not do that to his beloved? Right. Well, and, and we, I mean, to take a... Um, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with that viewpoint, but to take kind of from their book, it's, it is very clear that hell was not created for humans. 
It was not, God didn't say, I'm going to create the planet, and then if you mess up, I'm going to throw you in hell. No, hell was created for the devil and his angels. That's what it was created for. So God does not want us to go there. But what he does is he gives us free will to choose. And the whole world, I mean, it's, it's very hard to find a place, any corner of the world, that doesn't have any knowledge of Jesus. Very, very hard. And when you do have people that believe in God, and they hear the stories of Jesus, even though they may only hear the message once, they've had an opportunity to, um, to seek out the truth and to follow the gospel. So, yes, it sounds very harsh to send people to hell, but we have a loving and a gracious God. And to, to go to hell means you have been a, uh, you haven't surrendered to God. You haven't looked around and said, maybe I, maybe I didn't just kind of get created out of some primordial ooze. Maybe I was created by someone. And it's very hard to walk through the world and, and just go, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. People say that. They'll say that, but they don't always believe it. They're just trying to antagonize or to frustrate Christians. Because it's very hard. There was a famous um, atheist that passed away, and they did his funeral. And his brother, uh, first of all, I think a funeral is a Christian thing. <laughs> Don't think of it as an atheist thing. But anyways, they're having this service, and um, the brother said something to the effect that, uh, now that he's gone, I really wish that there was a heaven. I wish there was a place for him to go, uh, even though he was an atheist. And so people who are who say that they don't believe in God or they're agnostic, deep down, they, they know there is, it's almost impossible to explain without a creative force. Uh, they try to do it, but you can't. So, yeah, people, a lot of people don't believe in hell. They're making their choice. Yeah. <clears throat> and it is, a, um, it is an individual decision. You can't save your kids. You can't save your spouse. You, uh, you can only save yourself. Let me ask you this. I've heard there's levels of heaven and levels of hell. Yeah. That's, true. Uh, that's a good question. That comes back to Dante's uh, example of the different levels of hell. Um, I know that it says, that Jesus says that it'll be worse for them in judgment than someone else. And I heard preachers say, well, maybe that means that because they obeyed the gospel and then fell away, it'll be harder for them. I don't know, I don't know that that's the case. Um, I don't really have an example in the Bible of that where there is different levels. But we do have Jesus himself saying it's going to be harder on Judgment Day for these. So, yeah. Well, when one falls away after receiving the gospel, yeah. obey it, falls away, then the Holy Spirit leaves you. That's right. And that's what Peter says, uh, you know, that it's worse for a, someone who was once a child of God had fallen away. Uh, it also makes sense, too, when you look at certain stories of people who, uh, in, say, Matthew 25, that have been doing good things, and God says, I never knew you. That, that maybe they're doing it arrogantly, or they're doing it selfishly. And then you got Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, where it says if it's impossible for one who's tasted of the Holy Spirit and walked away to be restored. Uh, and that's a tough passage. Probably one of the toughest I've ever... I, we used to do question box night. That was one of those nights I was like, why did we do question box? But Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and, he, and the Hebrew writer clearly says, if you have been a child of God and you have been full of the Holy Spirit 
and you've been doing great things in God's name, and you just throw it all away, uh, the Hebrew writer says it's impossible to renew them. Now, that's a big word. You impossible. can be restored. You can be restored, yeah. And if he's restored, they don't, they don't remember the sin. Anymore. That's correct. That's it's correct. Gone. It's like it never happened. But, but you know what, on the positive note with all that, because some of my family and the different uh, churches that they went to, mm -hmm. they believed that there was different levels of heaven. And if you say, fed yeah. the poor, or, you know, whatever you did, you had this level. But if you were a preacher, you had this level, or you had this right. level of castle, and you had all these different our crowns that you wore. Yeah. Because I had an aunt that used to tell me whenever I did, she'd think I was doing something good. She'd say, oh, that's another star in your crown. Right, yeah. So you're going to get to go up a higher. Yeah. You know? Well, and we do that. We make those jokes all the time. You know, you're going to get a lot of stars in your crown for that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, most of the descriptions of heaven are not of garments that we wear. There are a few times that's mentioned. But usually it's about the environment. It's about what it looks like. And, you know, we talk about the crystal sea and the streets of gold. And Revelation gives us a lot of pictures. Although, as John pulls back the curtain for us to see... Uh, there's a lot going on that we cannot comprehend. We don't even, we're reading in English going, what does he mean by that? What's the living creature? How's that different from an angel? And so we got all these questions about how is this possible? How does this work? So we don't really know a lot of those details, but there are people also that believe, and I have a preacher friend that believes this, that uh, our talents that we have here that are spiritually given, uh, that we use to the glory of God, we will be using those talents also in heaven. So um, if you are a person who has a, a zeal and a desire to do some particular work, then you'll be doing the same thing up there. And I said, well, that sounds really neat, except for what about doctors and nurses? <laughs> There's no sickness. Uh, and what about preachers? Like, what, what are we going to be doing? Well, and it says we're all going to be singing hallelujah, yeah. the glory song, so yeah. Yeah. We will be. There will be a lot of praise, but there will also be a lot of eating, uh, and that's a, some people are just like what? But yeah, Jesus says when you get there, there's a wedding feast, a big table's prepared. In fact, when Revelation ends, he says, "Hey, you know the table's ready. Here comes the feast, and we we when we get there, we'll, we will be eating." Now, Jesus did that when he returned in John 21, remember? He's, he's like, you know, hey, look, you can touch me. I have a, I have a body, you know, and, I, and he's eating. Um, I don't think he's digesting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. If there's, I doubt there's number two in heaven, but I'm just saying, <laughs> I, think, I think you're eating, and Jesus talks about eating and a wedding feast, so there's going to be food. And uh, how that works, I, yeah, Ben, save me, Ben. Yeah, yeah, this should be a it's a crystal sea, you know. So, um, we'll the best answer is we'll know when we get there, but but repeatedly over and over, Jesus talks about feasts and wedding feasts in heaven, and I do think that there will be celebrations, so um. There might be some things on that table that some people on earth couldn't eat. Like Jews weren't able to eat certain foods, and now they can. We you know, can't. you're not going to have a body. I know, yeah, we don't have a physical body. So Jesus says, feel and touch. But he could also walk through walls. So I think we will have a form 
that has a, uh, much like our earthly form, has the ability to use your hands and your voice, because we're going to be singing, and walk wherever we want to go. Um, but I don't, the pleasure of eating will be there, but it'll probably just be taste. I, I don't know. I don't That's, know if anybody's ever been to a Jewish wedding before. I actually, when I was a child, my Girl Scout leader was Jewish, and so we got to, I got to go and do some things with them that I wouldn't have as just a, because, you know, they believed, especially back in the 50s, that you were like uh, dirty, you know, yeah. more clean. But anyway, at the wedding feast, when they finish there, everything is done in their synagogue, and you go into this little room, and what we think of as a wedding feast, they don't have it that way. They have wine, they have mm -hmm. fruit, mostly grapes and things, because different things are symbolic for them in, in that wedding, because they want the, the woman to be fertile, and they want them to have plenty of children. So everything is symbolic. Right. It's not about like what we would do with having the cake or, you know, whatever. So I don't, you know. Yeah. Who knows? Well, uh, John 20, verse 10, Jesus tells them on the seashore, hey, bring, bring me some of that fish you caught. <laughs> and he's making a barbecue breakfast there on the seashore. That's John 20. That's after he raises from the dead. And in Luke 24, um, he asks him in verse 41, he says, do you guys have any food here? <laughs> and so... He eats a piece of the fish, this is verse 42, and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And then he said, these are the words which I spoke to you. So uh, they, they couldn't believe that he had a physical body that looks real, but he's walking through walls, and he's eating broiled fish. So I guess you know what's on Jesus' menu if he's going to a gathering place today. He's going to be eating broiled fish. Um, and so all the Gospels show those stories of Jesus eating after, and twice, John and Luke, he asked them, could you bring me something to eat? And he eats it in front of them to show them, as Paul said, we will have a body like Jesus' body. So it has a form, you know, you could, for whatever reason, Jesus chooses to leave the nail prints. So um, you've got the nail prints in his hands and this side. Uh, dude, I've always wondered why, and I can ask him, I guess, when I get there. If he kept the holes from the nails on the cross, did he keep the other stars from where the crown of thorns laid? Um, did his image, it seems like when they see him after he raised up, they're not freaking out. I mean, they are scared when they see a ghost come in. They think it's a ghost. But ultimately, they welcome him. They talk. Jesus preaches to him in the Gospel of Luke 24. So his presence though it was similar, was also just a bit different. I doubt he had the crown of thorns. I doubt he was walking around with no shirt on. You know, he probably was robed. Um, it would have been considered, unless you were in a workplace, to be, uh, it would be, uh, it would not be good to sit down at a dinner table with your shirt off. Yeah? Uh, Mission goat. You know, when Jesus walked on the water, he thought he was a goat. Yes. So it, was, it was apparently the idea there were ghosts in those times. Mm -hmm. Just imagine what it was whenever Jesus died on the cross and the people came up out of the grave. And yes. The yeah, Matthew 28. Yeah. Matthew 27 says that, and the graves of the saints were opened. I think that has to do something with what Jesus was accomplishing during the three days he was in the grave. That's okay if people disagree with me. 
But um, I wholeheartedly believe you can piece together in Scripture, rightly divide what that was. Jesus actually, during the three days, according to Peter, went back. Some people have been waiting since the time of Noah for their judgment. And he tells them, you know, I've got the keys. He led captivity captive. That's Ephesians 4. There are dozens of scriptures that show whatever Jesus did for those three days sealed the fate for everyone's judgment up to the cross. So I believe they were those that were in Hades were sent to hell, and those that were in paradise were sent to heaven. That makes sense when we look in Revelation. Um, there are some believe that you know he just went into Hades and walked around a little bit and left. But there are too many, far too many scriptures that say and prophesy that he would change the course of human history at the point of the cross. So those three days in the grave, he wasn't taking a nap. He didn't go to heaven either. He didn't go to paradise. He does say he went to paradise to the, th to the uh, thief. But according to the other scriptures, he's just going to the waiting place. Paradise is the waiting place. He's not going to heaven. He's going to the Hadean realm. Yeah. Then what about the day of judgment? If, if they've already been judged. Yeah. That's a good question. That's a good question. I, I, I hesitate to say because <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it, it's my opinion, though, that the waiting was the waiting for the cross, not for judgment. We will wait. They will not. They were judged at that point. In fact, um, when John writes Revelation, he says, I already see, and he mentions mostly Jews. Now, there are some saints there. But he mentions mostly Jews. He said the 144,000, those are all Jewish men that are waiting for their judgment. So we, um, we have either one of two, two options. Either we go straight to heaven or we go to the waiting place. And I will tell you there are some who still believe that that place that Lazarus was in still exists today. That if we die, we go to this place of waiting. And then when Jesus comes back, we all go back into the grave to our body. And we raise up out of that body. Um, that's traditionally what most people will believe. Uh, but the other view is that there's no reason for a waiting place. What were they waiting for? What were they waiting for? For judgment? Well, then what was Jesus doing there? Well, if he's the judge, that's judgment in some way, shape, or form. So that's another view. That it's possible that Jesus actually did what Revelation 1 says he did. He opened up the doors. And he, he set them free. So people who were waiting since the day of Noah actually received their judgment. And the people that were safe in paradise, like Lazarus, were ushered into heaven. And that tends to make a little more sense when you read Revelation. If, the, if there aren't saints in heaven, why does Jesus say there are? And who were the saints? Who were the martyrs? The martyrs in chapter 5, which we're going to get there, how do they get there? Who are they? Give me an example of an Old Testament person who suffered that was called a martyr. We don't have that term. But we do when it comes to Stephen. And we do when it comes to Antipas, which is in Revelation. So when he says the saints are underneath the throne and they come up, then when John sees it, I was caught up on the Lord's day, these things are going to happen shortly. He says, I saw this in my own two eyes, that the martyrs of these seven churches were underneath the throne, begging for God to come down and avenge their death. And um, in chapter 4, while the angels are singing, holy, 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 uh, the, the, and the living creatures and all the angels are singing, the scroll's about to be opened. These 
saints, these martyrs, are saying, God, go down there and avenge our death. And of course, God does not do it. And instead, he gives them uh, a reward for waiting. So uh, this is one of the reasons why it's complicated to, to study through the book, because there are different views. You don't want to upset anybody on, uh, on what their particular view is. And that's fine if you believe that um, you know, when we die, we go and we, we, uh, we sleep for a while. Uh, if you believe that we go straight to heaven, that's another viewpoint. So, yeah. What about when the scriptures indicate when we receive the Holy Spirit? Uh huh. That the Holy Spirit, who works in the light, is a guarantee. Yes, a seal. Mm -hmm. Yes, the seal of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of salvation. That's that's how God. When God looks down upon us, He sees us covered by the blood and filled with the Spirit. So anyone who has not received the Spirit of God is the indwelling. Is not a child of God. Romans eight says, if you you know, he's talking to the church there. He says, if you're a son of God, you have the Spirit of God, and so that's the way God views us. And but as I mentioned, Hebrews six, as you mentioned a moment ago, you if you leave God, He removes His Spirit. That's really the shock to David's system in Psalm fifty one, as he's saying, God, I've sinned against you, and I'm sorry, but I'm begging you, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't do that. Yeah. Well, if I, you know, if I, if I'm taking something from someone, like let's say I'm going to take this, I don't know, what are you drinking? Coffee. If I'm coming to take it, you know, and it says uh, the idea is to take something, to give something. If I'm taking it away, then I don't quite have it yet. I'm going to take it away. Does that make sense? I'm about to take it from you. And so you start thinking about the Holy Spirit. David says, "Don't take." Your Holy Spirit from me. That means he still had the Holy Spirit. If he says, don't take it from me. Um, so she could say, don't take my coffee from me. That means I'm coming to take it. So David, even though he was a sinner in the most terrible ways, he senses God's Spirit leaving him. But he hasn't fully left him yet. And so that's another hope for us as Christians. When we go, oh man, I've done so much. I'm just, you know, I'm a sinner and I've David did some bad stuff. And he's saying, Lord, I'm sorry. Just please don't take your spirit. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't take your spirit from me. Um, but some people have walked so far away from God that the spirit's not welcome. And remember what Jesus tells that story about the, uh, the spirits. He says, you know, if he cleans his house, runs the spirit off, cleans the house and everything, well, then the spirit's going to come back seven more because that's, the house is clean. And so sometimes when we make a decision to become a child of God, that's the first Temptation. Like a lot of people will fall away right after their baptism. They will, they will come in and they'll be, I'm gung ho, and within a year they're not there. And that's super frustrating. We've had that happen here where I've studied with someone and, and baptized them, and then uh, they're like, Well, I'm saved. I'm like, yeah, but you got to stay in the faith. You got to keep walking. Um, yeah. Anybody else have a question? James? Yeah. Yeah, I'm carrying this down on the Reddit trail here. Yeah. Okay. One of the things that you do is cross-reference period of, of Scripture. Uh -huh. Okay. Which helps us to understand. But you also include common sense. Mm -hmm. The commons, the reasoning of common sense helps us to understand. We can't take a passage away. Right. We can't do away with the fact that the Scripture tells us that there is a day of judgment. Yeah. That, that we will give an account for everything yes. that we do at yes. that point in time. 
Give me a little bit more. <laughs> the, Common sense reasoning. Right, yeah. The judgment. That it, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says, and this is as clear as day, it is appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. The judgment. So, uh, again, I'm just saying, I don't say when, but, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to push my opinion because I know that we all have had those different opinions, but I know that the scriptures are pretty clear that whatever Jesus did, it was enough to shake the dead out of their graves. What was he doing? And why would he shake the dead? What's his goal in doing that? What's the purpose of it? Why would, why would Jesus, what's he doing for three days? Why has he got keys in his hand? What are the keys for? I mean, like, if I'm walking around with keys all the time, what would you expect if I just walked around with these keys all the time in my hand? See, my keys, and my keys, I got my keys. Well, you're thinking what? They've got to open something. <laughs> you know, like, why would Jesus have keys walking around saying, I got keys, I got keys, I'm going to unlock the doors to Hades and death, Revelation 1. Uh, if that wasn't going to happen for 4,000 more years. What's the purpose? You know, why, why would he talk about having keys and opening up the, day, the, the gates of hell? Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And that goes back to, uh, we can look at verse uh, chapter 1, when he says, uh, you know, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, makes it very clear. And then he says in verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write these things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. He says, I've got the keys, and I'm busy. What's Revelation? It's all about judgment. It's about what Jesus is doing at the time. And heaven is a, a different time zone if you want to call it that, there is no limits. So our viewpoint into heaven is, we look at it from a, um, we, this, is, this is tough, I know it is. And we look at it from our time perspective. Like when I ask God for a prayer, and then he answers it, I'm like, oh, great, that's great. But God exists outside of time. He created time. That's the reason why the Bible says that God knows all things. Now, he either knows all things or doesn't know all things. He knows the beginning, and he knows the end. God already knows how it ends. Before it started, he knew how it ended. That doesn't mean he pre-programmed, but he knows because he started it, and he already knows how it will end. So then Jesus says, write these things. These are things that, are gonna, that happened before, that are happening now, and that will be in the near future. So we're looking at it saying, well, God's constantly watching us right now. Yeah, but he exists outside of time. He exists outside of time. And that's the reason why when miracles happen in the Old Testament, they completely freak out. Because it's like, how did that happen? That, there's no explanation for it. Exactly. That's how we know Jesus is the Christ. He could do all these miracles, and he could raise the dead, and he could uh, do these amazing things. And um, th that's the reason why the Jews wanted more. Give us more signs. Give us more signs. We want to see it. Because they thought eventually he'd run out of juice or they'd catch him. You know, it's kind of like when you watch a magic act. You're trying to figure out how they do it. How'd they get that rabbit out of the hat? How'd they do that? Well, he had a pocket inside of his jacket. And if you would have noticed as he went to the hat, he pulled the rabbit out of the jacket. You're like, oh, man, now it's ruined. Yeah, but you wanted to know. You wanted to know how he did it. And so the Jews were looking and watching Jesus 
And when they couldn't, blank, couldn't find out, a, there are people today that say that Jesus did the uh, feeding of the 5,000 against a cave wall. And he was reaching back with his hands and taking stuff out of a curtain. And I heard, I heard a scholar say that once. And I said, that's insane. People would have figured that out. You, know, you can't reach in and pull out tilapia and bread. You know, you can't do that. People would catch on to it. They're smoking mirrors. But Jesus would make limbs grow back. And somebody would be filled with leprosy and suddenly be gone. So when the Pharisees couldn't do nothing about that, then they attacked his character. And they said, well, you know, he maybe do all that. But he, all he does is party with drunkards. He just goes to all these bars and hangs out with prostitutes. And, it may, and that's true. He did. He's a friend of sinners. But that doesn't mean he partakes with that kind of a lifestyle. And so Jesus was just constantly trying to show his disciples, I can do anything you ask. I can do anything. I can, I can do it. In fact, when I'm gone, just ask in my name and you'll be able to receive it. It's really neat. Um, but some of the miracles, they couldn't attack his character because everybody loved him. So they had to move on from the character and they started attacking the people he was healing. Like the guy born blind in John 8 and 9. And they say, well, this guy, he, he was blind because he's a sinner. Or maybe his parents were sinners since he was born blind. And um, so they attacked Jesus' uh, congregation. They attacked the people. And that's really the last straw. That's the last straw. It's the reason why Jesus cleansed the temple. He was sick and tired of the Pharisees taking advantage of the average person. He didn't like the hierarchical structure, which some churches have formed the back. Hierarchical structure. He destroyed that. So we're all equal. Um, all right. Any other questions about that? So when people are so bitter... That's right. That's right. That's a very good point. They don't have the Spirit of God. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't have love, joy. Think about all these atheists. Watch them on TV when they're going and protesting. How angry they are. How mad. How human mad. And the signs have cuss words on them. And they're shouting. And they're yelling. And they're... That's because they don't have any part of the Spirit. Look at Charles Manson. You know, is there, was there any sense in him? You know, he was wanting to become an ordained minister at one time. You know, there, there are some crazy things that people have gone through. Now, look at uh, Charles Darwin. It's another example. You know, he actually kind of failed out of seminary. So these people who get turned on God, they get angry. And that, that rage, that, and if there is a spirit of goodness and kindness, there's also an evil spirit that complements it. In fact, in Revelation, or I mean, in Galatians 5, we know the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, general self-control. What's the work of the flesh? That's the first part. Because he goes through verse after verse of the works of the flesh. We'll memorize the fruit of the Spirit. But what complements that, and I mean by complement that is it's like, you know, Batman versus the Joker. Okay? That there is good and bad that hit head on. And when you remove kindness from yourself and you take on uncleanliness, then it's going to, the evil's going to corrode and like a bacteria, it's going to eat you alive. So you have to keep feeding the spirit. Even though he is eternal, he lives inside of you, you have to feed your, you have to feed the spirit. You have to eat, literally. That's why it's called fruit. You partake of the spirit, yeah. This reference here to the seven spirits and the seven stars. Yeah. Is that I think and when we get to the seven spirits, I do think that there is a 
Uh, how much time we got? We're up. We're past time. <laughs> there, there is, if there is a guardian angel for individuals, and the Bible says there are for children, it is possible that there is an angel for each church. Now, I mentioned in the beginning, I believe when he says write to the angel of the church, he's talking to the minister, to the messenger. But you can sense the Spirit of God when people are gathered together. Uh, David puts it this way, God inhabits our praise. So when we sing, when you're singing, this is the emotional nature of song. When you're singing and something hits you, you know, you're just like, man, that really gets me today. Because God is dwelling in that. He lives in it. He's pitched a tent over the auditorium and is dwelling right there with us. That's why it's so important when we worship. We do it in spirit and in truth. And so God will remove his spirit from congregations. And you can go places. You go, man, I don't know what happened here. It's like a funeral. That's because his spirit isn't present. He was never invited. Some churches don't invite the spirit of God to worship. They have no intention of doing that. It's a man-made tradition, denominational, uh, sectarian, whatever you want to call it. And it's all about, we're going to do it our way. We're going to do it this way. And when you do that, you can have all the truth you want. But if you don't have the spirit, it's worthless. It's, it has to go together. You know, it hurts me so bad because you see these sites why I left the church of Christ. Yeah. And it's so angry. Yeah. And somebody was telling me about I was just trying to think, I'll never go from Right. And I'm just like, how can you go from being right. and then be so mad? Right. What did somebody do to you yeah. that, that's so bad that you would throw your whole faith away? Right. Not just the church, but throw your faith away. Um, there's something deeper than just being upset because, and this is another reason why you shouldn't take things so personal when people leave. I used to, it tore me up when people left the church because I would baptize them, I would teach them, I'd visit them, I'd send them cards, I'd do everything I can to keep them. But it's not converting them to Ray Reynolds. You have to convert them to Jesus. And if they don't have a strong relationship with God, they're not going to stay faithful. So when they choose to walk away and surrender to Another way of life, they're surrendered to the devil. And if God's spirit isn't in you, what spirit is in you? You know, we say, well, there's nothing at all. Yeah, until you invite in evil, wickedness. Uh, that's one reason why a lot of people, when they walk away, man, they walk away hard. I mean, they go to alcohol and drugs. And like you said, there's a guy on Facebook right now. His name's uh, Jared, I think's his name. Uh, but his dad is a very famous preacher in our brotherhood. And he became the administrator of the Church of Christ Facebook page. And so because of that, he has turned it to anti-church Christ. Now, I'm still on that page because I want to see what he says. But whenever he says something, I'll jump in. Other preachers will. And people will text me. They'll go, just get out of it. Just leave it alone. And I'm like, I know, I know. But something about poking the beast, you know. Poking the bee's nest. And I, I just think that somebody's got to love him. Uh, try to help him find his way back. But he, man, he is hateful. He is just evil. You know somebody's like that too when they like all their own posts. You know, <laughs> it's only liked by one person and it's you. You know, you're like, oh, hey, Jared liked this one. Well, he liked this one too. He's the only one that's like this one. Well, because he's, he's the only one liking what he's saying. And, uh, but people will turn and they will just be hateful. And it's because they surrendered the Spirit of God. All right. Well, let's uh, close for now.
Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.